Inside Outside Innovation is the podcast that brings you the best and the brightest in the world of startups and innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, founder of InsideOutside.io, a provider of research, events, and consulting services that help innovators and entrepreneurs build better products, launch new ideas, and compete in a world of change and disruption. Each week, we'll give you a front row seat to the latest thinking, tools, tactics, and trends in collaborative innovation. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger. And as always, we have another amazing guest. Today, I'm truly excited to talk to Laura Ann Edwards. Laura is, I would call her a virtual think tank. We talk a lot about how people have slash careers, podcast authors, set slash and entrepreneur, etc. Laura has got a lot of background that we wanted to dig into today. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. I'm delighted to be here. Laura, I'm so excited to have you on the show for a number of reasons. One, I wanted to just introduce the audience to a little bit of your background, and you can go into more detail, but you are a NASA data knot. You are a TED resident. You are an advisor to the LA Clean Tech Incubator, founder of She Can Hack It, and the list goes on and on. Why don't we start the conversation by how did you get involved in innovation and involved in all these types of projects that you're working on? First of all, thank you so much for having me. Honestly, it's not intentionally. It came because I realized that I look at systems and try to figure them out. And if I'd known that there was a career in that, I would have branched <laughs> into it earlier. It's just one of those things that I, over time, learned tools and started to get paid for figuring those things out for people. But it's more a way of looking at things than a particular career path that I set out to have. It's very interesting because, uh, again, you've done a lot of different things in a couple different topics. And I've been struggling to figure out what's the best way to tackle this interview because we can go in so many different directions that we could talk about sustainable innovation. We can talk about women in STEM. We can talk about open data and that. Maybe let's start with of the topics that you cover and the things that you look at, what's your favorite topic to talk about? I would say an underlying theme that I've come up with is sustainable innovation. In the time and place we live in, we hear an awful lot of really skilled, smart people getting very granular or very philosophical about innovation. But they don't hear much about maintaining these things over time. So mm. there's a lot of canonization of geniuses and spurts of creativity or brilliant sprints to come up with fabulous products. And all of that has tremendous value. But it's not a system, and it is certainly not sustainable. If you ask me out of all of these things, what am I the most passionate about? I guess it's open data, but for that, it's a key underpinning sustainable innovation. Sustainable innovation to me is separate from the seduction, if you will, of sprints and brainstorming. In my opinion, it is looking at what you're doing, who you're doing it with, when you're doing it, and building a flow for what I like to call an environment of creative collision. In that environment of creative collisions, how much of it is people-driven versus process-driven versus technology-driven? What are some of the key components or elements that make this ability to have sustainable innovation happen? First and foremost, it's knowing who you've hired or who you've assembled, mm -hmm. like really being honest about who you are so by and large, companies recruit pretty well, and they find a lot of talented people, and then they 
slot them in roles and don't get the most out of them. I mean the creative collisions between the teams, between the people, getting the most of your introverts, not letting the extroverts and the people who draw well on whiteboards take over every meeting, mm-hmm. not overscheduling. I mean, in my own consultancy, I employ a set of tactics I call an innovation audit. And it's a highly customized approach to looking at, well, how does this company actually have information flow? And how do they actually co-create and design? As opposed to, so like an accountant would do a paper audit or a digital audit of numbers and things. What is that like for human communication and synergy? So to your question of what's about people and what's about process, it is generally a few simple process changes and then an amount of awareness to shift how companies might have meetings or have their creative sessions. A company that's famous for a very specific set of rules that generate a lot of sustained innovation is Pixar. It's easy to attribute that to that being a bunch of storytellers, but it's much more than that. Their process suits the people that are there and suits the product that they're trying to make. We don't tend to do that in tech. We tend to put people in verticals and then wonder why the engineers and the designers don't have any communication or have it too late. In your analysis and where you've seen some success in this idea of sustainable innovation, is it this concept of having a cross-functional team, being able to work together and build things versus, like you said, the kind of siloed approach? Or what are some of the trends or tactics that you're seeing that are working better for this concept? I think trying to enforce a set of tools on a team that rigidly sends their muscle memory snaps back into verticals is a little bit hopeless. I mean, I'm a big believer in design thinking and all kinds of fabulous workshops and tools and things, but swooping in and doing a set of these things and then hoping that leads to institutional change doesn't. I wish it did. What I find is small changes at working with the leadership team in what's the meeting schedule, what's Mm -hmm. the office layout, what are some of the things that can be shared. So in other words, something should be transparently shared with the company of, hey, this is what we're trying to do. We're aiming to stoke conversation. So it might be very different in a creative agency or some firm might do things like have salon lunches once a month or Mm -hmm. create some of that social lubricant. One of my favorite stories of these kinds of things is a story that Wozniak tells of his time at Xerox Park. You have a bunch of engineers like himself, tending to be maybe slightly on the introvert side, not all, of course, and twice a day, I think he said, a donut cart came around. (laughs) Now, something as simple as that brought all of those people out of their cubbies and offices, and did they talk about their projects over those donuts? Maybe, but something happened in that social lubricant that he attributes to them then scattering and going and doing extraordinary solo work that didn't happen or doesn't tend to happen when you don't have things like that. So again, it's not the ping pong table and the free food. It's something more facilitated than that that actually has people talking. And that is really it. And I guess the third thing would be, what is your company's version of prototyping? Because Hmm. getting small teams together to 
build something even as a project presentation to give to the rest of the group and making that interdisciplinary as much as you can is a huge not just team building exercise but it allows for very different kinds of creativity and innovation leaps and then i guess the last thing is it being safe to float those things you think that that is accomplished in big brainstorming sessions but right. in some ways they never get crazy enough there's still a competition and a performance aspect to it and so it's it's better to have a regular routine airing of ideas and these things in every weekly meeting or all the time rather than it being big high stakes spotlight on you kind of situations in companies that again appeal to the performative and the extroverts and yes. leave everybody else nodding it isn't that it's not right to you know let your extrovert shine it's that you're leaving talent on the table right the specific tactics may not be universal but having consistency for whatever works for your particular industry or your particular company seems to be important to that process of making it work or having that sustainable innovation happen. We know a lot about physical training, right? We have a whole mm -hmm. giant industry dedicated to cross training. Those trainers will tell you, you can't keep doing the same five things. Right. Your body won't take it or it won't continue to improve. So there's some aspects of variety and distraction and flow state. On the simplest level, it is really looking at who do you have, what are you trying to do, and how can you create ways that they interact on a more regular basis. So have you seen these trends and tactics kind of change over time as new tools and new technologies take hold? You know, obviously there's a big push towards innovation and companies becoming more innovative in that and battling startups and, and this thing. What kind of things have you seen historically that have maybe changed over time that makes this either more important or easier or difficult to actually execute on? Well, I think because we're so tech-focused as a culture and in our businesses these days that there's a bias toward things that are product-oriented. And so there's a, a whole industry of very capable levels of consultancies and, and advisory firms that work with tech teams, big or small, to recruit, to motivate, to generate streams of products. I feel like there's another cottage industry that's about worker morale and culture. I haven't seen that translate very well to industries and companies that are not pure tech product companies. Hmm. And in the tech companies, I feel like those folks put all that attention into the engineering teams and not into the rest of the company, right? which also needs to be innovative and support and cross-disciplinary and all those good things. And is part of that like a function of diversity itself? I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, this movement towards more women in tech and women in STEAM and diversity in general. Is that a core problem that you're seeing is inhibiting folks from becoming more innovative and taking advantage of what's out there? To the extent that diversity has become a catchphrase and that, you know, we all want quick solutions. We want to like take the workshop, learn the tools, and then like our company's fixed, right? Think about deep diversity. And so I, I've mentioned it a couple times, but beyond age and background and race and where people come from, all of those are really valuable first steps for intentionally having more interesting facets and perspectives in your company, which engenders 
more creative collisions by mm-hmm. definition. But go deeper. I would always say that if five people from very different parts of the world and different races and even different degrees all went to the same school and then worked in the same big consultancies, they're going to be more alike in how they approach work and how they contribute within that company than than not. And much of the differentiation you're hoping for in that initial diversity effort in recruiting is lost. I take it the next step. I think what matters in addition, or at least equally, to those factors and actually teasing out and keeping those differentiations fresh is looking for different ways of thinking. She hates it when I say this, but I grew up I grew up with a really, really smart mom who if she and I were both asked to solve something, we would tend to figure it out. And I realized that we solved it completely differently. Hmm. <laughs> it took me a long time in life to realize that people's brains and how they think are really different. And so one of the most amazing diversity efforts that you can make is understanding different kinds of problem solving and creative solution processes. And chances are you have those people on your team and you didn't screen for it that way when you hired them, although I would highly recommend that start to become a thing. Mm -hmm. Another cultural example would be if you watch a disaster movie, if people are stranded somewhere and there's, you know, they, they need to get off the island, immediately you're looking at how different people not only know things, what different skills did they bring with them when they walked in the door, but how do they think differently? Right? right. Who's good under this kind of situation? And we don't tend to survey that and use that as an amazing team tool set. Given that innovation is such a collaborative creative collision kind of process, and it takes more than just you know one person to make an impact, what would you say to the individual who's trying to help their company or their team become more innovative and take advantage of some of this thinking? Are there particular tools or tactics or things that an individual could do? Well, I think they can actually know who their people are, and not just the emotional intelligence of people you know, having some sense of how to support people based on their other life stresses and things to have them have a productive day. But like I say, really know who they are, what they're most interested in. In a hypothetical exercise, what would their 20% time be? If I had a box of oil paints, I would want to know every single color that I have. And so understanding the colors of your people in terms of how they think, how they approach problem things, and not just asking rote, vertical, drill-down specific skill questions tends to result in both people feeling heard and staying engaged and being willing to share credit and add on to each other's ideas rather than have a little scary petri dish of competitiveness within teams, big and small. That takes work. If product managers acted more as facilitators rather than administrators, I think we'd get a lot more out of their teams. That's an interesting concept and interesting thought process around, yeah, you're facilitating problem solving rather than administering or or driving towards a particular product plan or something along those lines. That's an interesting way to think about it. Are you seeing different ways that individuals or companies can measure if they're on the right path or any particular metrics that kind of stand out to see if you are having that more inclusive environment or 
being able to tap into those different things? Or is it just an outcome kind of thing that you're measuring? It's a tough one. It takes time and it's hard in startups to get them to think about or scaling tech companies to think about anything other than raising money or valuation, right? A product output. But ultimately in retention of talented teams and clarity of mission and the ability to use your teams to understand and help be a feedback loop to the decision makers and leadership and on your boards, because often your employees, there's so much more surface area in the scaled number of them for information in the field that you're in and allowing them to be part of that feedback loop mm-hmm. should give the board more informed decisions and leadership. It doesn't usually work that way, but when it does, it is an amazing thing, right? So that where everybody understands what you're doing, everybody understands that the company is actively working to expect the most out of people and the best of them and is looking to give them ways to deliver that, not just driving them toward the scourge of KPI. Right. The traditional metrics of of existing business models, et cetera. We've applied industrial production tactics to human capital, right? Mm -hmm. We've gone off the manufacturing plant to the coder plant, if you will, the corporate plant. And we have gotten really good at that, but it has leveled off. Now it's time to remember that these are human assets, not machines. And now we also are stepping into this amazing kind of miraculous loaded age of things like AI and machine learning and all of these things to marry with what is special and unique about humans. And it's time for a new set of processes and facilitation to have that both be sustainable for the the humans and Mm -hmm. to generate the best results. And I think we're just at the beginning of that. And, you know, my sort of basic mapping of is your human asset better in a longer term way is a marathon on a sprint doesn't take away from good sprint tactics, but it sets us up for being able to add new ingredients like AI and make the most of that synergy. The last topic I want to talk about is, is this idea of open data, and you've got a lot of experience and background in that. How is data and access to AI and these kind of new technologies that give us access to the world's information tenfold changing the way we create and build new innovative ideas? My personal area in this space is about access to open data. And the reason that I, as a systems thinker, the reason I came up with that and realized it was initially I was working to solve a communications problem within the climate space. So how to facilitate the flow of information between policymakers and climate scientists. And when I looked deeper, I realized that we were really looking at a fundamental challenge in the flow of data. And then going deeper again, realizing that while many were carrying the banner about making more things open, Mm -hmm. there was an inherent issue in even finding the things that already were open. I believe that by connecting and making available the existing and ongoing, ever-adding treasure house of these silos of open data by connecting them as a giant virtual library. They Mm -hmm. stay in the silos that they're in, but they are searchable and you at least know what is in the world. 
I believe that we can solve the so-called last mile problems in the world. We've done a huge amount of research, both business and scientific, but we haven't done a great job at making all of those reported results available to apply the new kind of wonder of the big algorithms and the data analytics and the computing power. And so now is the time. Yeah, that would encourage that creative collision. Or you might not even know what particular data source would be important to you, but if it was easily viewed and you bump into the fact that, oh, that particular data source would be pretty interesting to what I'm studying over here. Well, we also have a huge issue that if you're a doctoral student, you tend to do your PhD in something that your advisor or professor is working on. Right. And while that's perfectly fine, there's no handy way to know who's doing what in doctoral studies around the world at any given time. You don't see that until it's published. And so while you might be able to infer, wouldn't it be great if that could be more granular so mm -hmm. that some of our most focused minds could adjust their programs to fix gaps in our body of knowledge? Right. Also, if an asteroid was headed toward the Earth, we don't have a data arc. And what data is most important to us? I think we'd pretty quickly stop thinking about cell phones and the Internet of Things, as cool as they are in our mm -hmm. current environment. But I think we'd care a lot about math and science and cultural heritage. And right now, we have no central repository or mechanism for locating those things and creating sets of arcs. Fascinating stuff. So what's next for Laura and what's next for some of the things that you're working on? So what's next for me is really actively moving forward on Data Oasis, which is an organization I've started to create an index of open data resources and an open wiki of best practices. I am actively engaged in a set of pending collaborations with different organizations around the world looking to both start nodes of just simple gathering on the most basic level, so mm -hmm. in various fields of scientific study, creating an open list that is accessible to citizen scientists as well as academic researchers around particular subfields that have interdisciplinary needs for access but don't have any good tools for that, as well as some proposals working regionally for case studies of taking this underpinning of indexing open data and marrying that with sophisticated AI case studies to see how AI can help be, if you will, the reference librarian. It sounds fascinating. I'm excited to see how it all comes together. If people want to find out more about yourself or about Data Oasis or, or the projects you're working on, what's the best way to do that? I have a website, Ann with an E, edwards.com. On Twitter, I am at Alora Brava, and they can find me through you, Brian. Excellent. Well, Laura, thank you very much for being on Inside Outside Innovation. Look forward to having you back on the show in the future to talk about all the new things that you're seeing out there in the world, whether it's clean tech or open data, et cetera. And thank you again for being a part of this, this amazing show. Thank you so much. That's it for another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. If you want to learn more about our team, our content, our services, check out InsideOutside.io or follow us on Twitter at The IO Podcast or at Artinger. Until next time, go out and innovate.